Good afternoon. It is Thursday with Brett McGarry and Greg Mackling. I'm Brett. He's Greg. Did you say Thursday? It is Thursday, That's yes. my Friday, sort of. Sort of, yes, yes, because you do have duties to fulfill tomorrow. I do, but uh, Tristan Field-Jones will be in my chair tomorrow afternoon. That may compel many more of you to listen to the program tomorrow afternoon. So, <laughs> uh, But I will be at Health Sciences Centre tomorrow morning from 9 until uh, about 1 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. We'd love to see you down there as we gear up for the uh, early bird VIP bonus for the Tri-Hospital Dream Lottery. So hopefully... Uh, I know I will uh, meet a bunch of you tomorrow. I look forward to that. Uh, We have a jam-packed show for you this afternoon. We thought the first half hour, at least, of our program might get taken over by an incident in Times Square where a car ran over multiple people, including one uh, person who uh, lost their life. Uh, Of course, when you hear about incidents like that in major tourist areas, your first thought is terrorism. Uh, New York City police have ruled that out. It appears as though an intoxicated driver is to blame going the wrong way down Broadway uh, earlier today in New York City. So uh, any more developments out of that story, we will uh, surely uh, keep you up to date on those. We are also going to talk about Chris Cornell. We will be speaking with Eric Alper, who is a music commentator at thatericalper.com at 1.30. And also don't forget that tonight there is a special edition of The Ongoing History of New Music with Alan Cross, a special at 6 o'clock for an hour, 6 until 7, regarding Chris Cornell. And then Carolyn Clausen joins us at 2.30 to talk about loyalty. Where does it originate What triggered that conversation again? Well, a little bit of the assertion that Donald Trump asked James Comey, the now former FBI director, for his undevoted or unabashed loyalty, essentially. And uh, Comey really wouldn't give that to him. And so uh, loyalty is something that's been in the news a little bit lately. And so I wanted to know a little bit about the origins, how fragile is loyalty, and uh, where does it emanate from? Where does it begin? So we'll talk about uh, Carolyn Clausen on that one. But before we get uh, into those stories, here's some audio from raw video captured at the scene of an arrest of a global news cameraman in Hamilton, Ontario. Okay, thanks. They've, uh, just so you know, they've, they have put up tape just now, and he's, we're well, well behind the tape, just so you know. Okay. I've asked you to get out of here. Okay. Don't touch me. I've asked. Do not touch me. You're under arrest. Okay. You're under arrest. Put your camera down. You're under arrest too. Okay. No problem. I've asked you to stay away from him. No problem. Just so you know, you're on the phone right now with uh, an officer. Put your camera down. Put your hand behind your back if you don't want your. I am. Just arrest. Put it down. Let it go. Let it go. So the audio might not tell the whole story, but I think you can get a really good idea that the cameraman uh, had been told earlier to kind of back off from an accident scene. He did that. The police put up tape. He was very respectful of the fact uh, that the tape was in place, you know, the traditional caution tape, the police tape uh, that marks off a a crime scene. And it it sounds as though, and it would appear as though, the confrontation between this uh, global camera person and another journalist was heating up to the point that the cameraman had actually called the information office of the Hamilton City Police and was on the phone 
with that information office while this was all going down because this journalist was uh, bothered by the way he was being treated by this police officer. So why don't we have a look or have a listen to the story from Global National's Mike Droulet. At the scene of an accident, everybody has a job to do. Police investigate, paramedics work on the injured, and the media document it all. Last night in Hamilton, after the victim in an accident had been removed from the scene, global photojournalist Jeremy Cohn arrived to find freelance photographer David Ritchie being arrested. Cohn called Hamilton Police's media officer, and while on the phone with them, Officer Jeffrey Todoruk approached. They have put up tape just now, and he's we're well, well behind the tape, just so you know. Okay. I've asked you to get out of here. Okay. Don't touch me. I've asked Do you. not touch me. You're under arrest. Okay. You're under arrest. Put All your right. camera down. You're under arrest, too. Okay. No okay. problem. I've asked you to stay away from him. No problem. The video shows Todoruk grabbing Cone, forcing him to drop his camera. The arrest happened right here in the, in the grass. While another freelancer, Andrew Collins, recorded the rest of the incident. I turned around and I see Jeremy getting thrown to the ground. Uh, his tripod go flying, phone get thrown to the ground, backpack taken off. And this cop's huge guy, probably 6'11 or whatever he was, on top of Jeremy. Puts his knee into his back and uh, yanks them up like, like he's trying to attack like a violent offender. Todorok then turned on Collins. Can you get it on my face while I'm busy right now? Collins says he was legally doing his job, so he followed Todorok and a handcuffed cone. The road is closed. I've asked you three times now to get off the road. I'm telling you the road's closed. That tape tape doesn't mean anything. You want to stay in here and argue with me? It should be noted, while all this was going on, witnesses say not a single other officer stepped in to assist with the arrest. Ritchie has been charged with obstructing a peace officer and resisting arrest. He claims the officer took his camera and made derogatory comments about the media and after a short argument, arrested him. Cohn was released without any charges being laid after an hour and is now out of the country on a pre-planned vacation. Despite numerous attempts, Hamilton police would not answer questions about the arrests. It is uh, clear to us that that protocol was likely not followed and we want to know why. We're, we're dissatisfied with the behavior of police as, as we understand it played out last night. Late this afternoon, Hamilton's chief of police released a statement saying, I take the arrest of any member of the media seriously. As a result, I am reviewing this incident in the context of what transpired yesterday. But that's not enough for the national watchdog group Canadian Journalists for Free Expression. No, uh, because, you know, as we've seen with many police forces across the country, when there's an internal investigation, too often that just winds up uh, covering things up and protecting the officers as opposed to actually working towards a public benefit. There needs to be a public inquiry from outside of the police force to see what's happened in this case. Mike Trolet, Global News, Toronto. So, obviously, in the world that we live and where we work, Brett, this this story kind of hits home, but it hits home on another front as well, because those journalists were all at the scene of what was a turned out to be a fatal collision. A 10-year-old little girl died. And so as a parent, I can relate to the idea of wanting to protect my family's privacy. I wonder if that police officer is a family man and was just acting in the way he thought might be in the best interest of the family involved in this tragic event. All sorts of emotions at a scene like that. We'll talk a little bit in just a short period of time with Duncan Pike of the Canadian Journalist for Free Expression. Uh, You've been on 
numerous crime scenes before. Have you ever been asked to step away from a scene, telling, being told that you're too close to it? I've been to exactly one crime scene. I'm not a reporter. I don't go into the field, but we do have an on-call system here at 680 CJOB where if there is something significant on the weekend, then the person who is on call has to go out and deal with it. And I was on call the weekend that that Cooper Nemeth, Winnipeg teenager, was found dead. It was February 20th, uh, Saturday. So I got the call at 12.30 in the morning, of Sunday morning. I just sat down on my couch. I'd just gotten home, was out with friends, and I had to, you know, bundle up and, and go out to the scene, which was, you know, he was found in the back lane on uh, Bain Crescent, which runs off of Tupelo Avenue. So... I I don't like going out into the field. I had no idea what I was doing, so I parked somewhere on Tupelo Avenue and just kind of walked up to the crime scene. There was a cadet parked right at the corner of Tupelo and Bain Crescent, and he saw me approach, so he got out of the car, and I just said hello. I am here from CJOB. I don't know what the protocol is for this. I'm not a reporter, uh, but I was called out tonight. Am I? I see the crime tape. Am I allowed, like how, where can I go? Where can I be at this scene? He says, you can't go past the tape. Okay. So I took a couple of pictures and then I went to across the street because they had taped off Bain Crescent, but the, so that this was the north side of Tupelo, but the south side was still open. So the north side was all taped off, but the south side was still open. So I could go up the sidewalk. So I thought, well, because there were also police at the at the intersection of Tupelo and London Street, which was just a block east of that location. So I thought I'll go walk along the south side of Tupelo, take a picture of the other police officers, and, and be on my way. As soon as I started walking, the cadet got out of his car again and, and flagged me down and said, no, 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 that's closed as well. Okay, I just, I wasn't there to, to not cooperate. I cooperated and I came back and... I think my phone died because it was cold. I think I got two or three pictures and that was that. So it was it was a, a bizarre experience for me, but I was polite with the cadet and he was polite back and that's essentially was the end of our interaction and I made sure to respect the instructions that I was given. And uh, that's basically the end of what I went and got my car and came back to the station. You know, you studied journalism and, and, and uh, creative communications. Why, why do we go to these things, Brett? Why, why are we taking pictures of a, of a crime scene like that? Why are we getting video of a scene where a 10-year-old little girl has died in a traffic accident? Well, it's just, it's, people want to know what happened, right? You see police officers, if you're driving down the street and you see a large presence of emergency vehicles, you want to know what happened. This is something that's happening in my community. I want to know what happened. You can't, there's, for one, there's just that curiosity. So we're there to report on uh, on an incident. If there's a safety element to it, there's certainly, then the media is there to report to the general public, here's what's happening, here's what you need to know. Or even if it's just a traffic situation, this street is blocked, here's why. Because people want to know why. It's at the basic, the fundamentals. We want to know who, what, where, when, why. Well, you know what's interesting is when that apartment building was on fire, was that on Monday? Monday or Tuesday mm-hmm. this week? 
uh, the number of text messages that we got. A, of people yep. saying, hey, we can see smoke from every corner of the city. Here's a picture. What's going on? Yep. People want to know immediately what's going on, and they count on CJOB, on Global News, on whatever your favorite news I- outlet may be to get the news to be out there and let us know what's going on. But is there a line in covering that? Is there a, is there a line to be observed? I know the police creates a line, a very finite line with their police tape, but is there another line that, that we should be conscientious of? And, and that's part of the conversation we wanted to have this afternoon. And that line, I think, continues to be <clears throat> blurred a little bit, maybe pushed a little bit further back, thanks to the likes of uh, TMZ or paparazzi. You'd like to think that the general public abhors paparazzi and the kind of thing they do, but, but would they exist No, if people weren't consuming the very thing that they were putting out into if, the world? If there was not a market, they would not exist. We'll take a pause here. We'll update you on the weather forecast. Eve uh, asking a question, why, are, why did the reporter cross the tape? Is there an unspoken agreement allowing this to happen? He did not cross the tape. He was asked to move back, respected the tape. So if that came across uh, in any way at any point in the storytelling here, either through our words or through the audio that we've played for you from Global News, uh, he did not cross the tape. In fact, he was extremely respectful of the police tape. It was the police officer that suggested that the police tape didn't really mean anything. And he meant in terms of setting an outer boundary, not an inner Boundary, I think, was the police officer's point there. Like I said, we'll update uh, weather for you in just a moment here. And then when we come back, we'll visit with Duncan Pike of the Canadian Journalist for Free Expression. It's 122 on this Thursday afternoon. We welcome now to the program Duncan Pike. He is Campaigns and Advocacy Coordinator for the Canadian Journalist for Free Expression. We're talking about story out of Hamilton, Ontario, where a journalist, two of them, in fact, one, a global cameraman, were arrested uh, by a Hamilton police officer for, well, or I guess we're not really exactly sure what they were arrested for. Do we know, Duncan? Because the global cameraman was relieved, released after about an hour's time. So we have multiple eyewitness reports of um, extreme use of force by police in, in um, arresting these journalists and um, in one case tackling to the ground and, and um, we're not um, we're not exactly sure what uh, what the reason for this uh, this incident is yet. We have one statement from police that offers no information besides what we already know that um, that there were, these arrests took place, um, and we've spent hours um, uh, the last couple of days trying to reach the police just to get their side of the story, and we're not we're not getting any information, and it's it's extremely frustrating. What we've heard so far is that, or what we know from from eyewitness reports is that. Um, these uh, these two journalists were uh, responding to um, uh, an incident or collision between a pedestrian and a vehicle in which a ten year ten year old girl was tragically killed. Um, and um, these uh, these reporters were there to to interview police and and to get some establishing shots of the area just for for news reports. This is obviously a matter in the public interest. Um, they were well back from from police lines. They were at, at the time of the incident, the time of the arrest. They were. Uh, reportedly 150 meters away from the incident itself. Um, and it's dumbfounding and, and extremely concerning that, it, that this incident ended with two reporters being arrested and now one facing two, two charges um, with uh, resisting arrest and obstructing a police officer. 
So, Duncan, you know, you mentioned this is in the public interest. Some people want to know where is that line? Of course, the the police establish uh, their physical line, but something like this. Uh, I was trying to put myself in in the uh, head of the police officer to a great extent. You know, maybe he's a family guy and and he can't maybe can't wrap his head around the idea that uh, anybody would want to film this, uh, let alone talk about it. Well, look, there there is strict regulations uh, that are that um, that are in place across uh, the media industry in Canada against showing any pictures uh, of victims of, of crashes like this, and especially in the case of children. Um, story uh, photos like that are never are never shown, and they were they weren't taken in this case, and the names of the victims weren't are not revealed as per the wishes of the family. Um, when when there there are deaths on the highway like this, these are always widely reported, and these things need to be written about. I mean, from, from a public safety perspective, so people know about um, highway safety, these are things that, that we read about all the time and that, that we have a right to read about and that, we, that journalists have a right to cover. Um, the privacy in this case of the victim um, was, was not violated in any way, and, and these, these journalists were well away from from the the, the police lines that, that were set up um, for the investigation. So, um, that's the the privacy issue is completely understandable, but in no case were these journalists at all violating that. Why do you think there should be a public inquiry into this? Well, I mean, uh, partly it's um it's a result of um we 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 know that um, this is not an isolated incident. Um, it shows that there's a serious problem with um, accountability and transparency in the relationship between police and journalists. The fact that we don't know what happened. Um, and the only information we're getting out of, out of police so far is that um, there have been arrests. I mean, the, we need to know we need to know what happened here, why a police officer acted in this way, and if there are deeper issues with um, with training of police, um, and if if more oversight is needed to ensure that something like this doesn't happen again. We have about thirty seconds for this answer, and I apologize for that, Duncan. The idea of citizen journalism and freelance journalism does this complicate issues at scenes like this? I don't think so. I mean, in this case, uh, uh, the Jeremy Cohn was as a reporter for Global News was one of the arrestees, and the other uh, David Ritchie is a freelancer who who works widely with with news uh, organizations throughout throughout Hamilton. He's a well known, well respected journalist um, whose whose work has appeared a lot. I mean, this, these are two working professional journalists um, who, who should not have been treated in this way by by police. Duncan Pike, thank you so much for joining us. Duncan is Campaigns and Advocacy Coordinator for the Canadian Journalists for Free Expression. It's great to be back here. Honestly. Uh, I love you guys up there on the top shelf, but you got to stand up and show me something. I have bragged about Detroit crowds for 30 years, so stand the up and make some noise. I see all of you. Get the up. That is audio from video shot at last night's concert. Soundgarden at the Fox Theater in Detroit just hours before Chris Cornell would allegedly take his life. Coroner's now uh, confirming. So do we have to take the allegedly out of that? Uh, Brett, you're the journalism guy here. Um, Chris Cornell dead at 52 and 
as we are telling you, AP confirming that the coroner in in Detroit is confirming that it was at Cornell's own hand. A medical examiner has determined the Soundgarden singer Chris Cornell killed himself by hanging in a Detroit hotel room following a concert. A full autopsy report not yet completed as of this afternoon, Greg. Uh, sad story to be sure. Uh, when these things happen, uh, it's commonplace and human nature, I think, to celebrate the life of individuals that have had an effect on our lives. And in the case of Chris Cornell, his music has had a gigantic effect on uh, millions of people. We're drawing upon the expertise of our good friend Eric Alper, and uh, we welcome Eric to the program now. You can go to his website, that ericalper.com. Eric, thanks for taking some time today. I'm sure you're being inundated with media requests to talk about Cornell, so we appreciate you putting us uh, at the head of the line here. Tell us about Chris Cornell. Um, Well, you know, Chris is one of these guys that um, had a real keen sense of music history. And what I mean by that is that for a lot of music fans who grew up um, with their formidable years, I guess, being a teenager in the 80s, the grunge era of Soundgarden, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Blind Melon, uh, those bands really hit home for myself and also a lot of people around North America because, you know, like most teenagers, you kind of get into the classic rock stuff. You get into the Beatles and the Who and the Stones. And Chris Cornell loved all of those bands and was kind of a little bit of a gateway of, of you know, not only using the best parts of Led Zeppelin, the heavy metal riffs, but also the softer acoustic folkier side when he wants to be. And certainly, you know, he was um, one of these untouchable singers that if you talk to anybody in the Seattle area, when grunge was first starting to hit, they all said that Soundgarden was going to be the one band that would surely break big. And they did. They were the first band to be signed by a major label, which kind of opened up the doors and broke down some of the stigma of selling out to a big major label corporation. And that led the, you know, artists like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and, and, uh, uh, and Allison Chains and others to be signed by major labels. Did uh, Chris Cornell have a history at all with drugs? Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's been fairly open in, in the past during interviews talking about how um, he spent a lot of his teenage years holed up in his home suffering from depression. And when that happens, especially when you live in a small town or a city that you desperately want to get up, a lot of teenagers look to drugs and they look to alcohol to kind of ease the pain and just to help cure the boredom of, of you know, waiting around for your moment to happen. And that's why a lot of the bands actually started seemingly all at the same time is because they all wanted to get out of Seattle. And they all wanted to get out of their small, measly, dead-end town. And they didn't want to work at a boring job. So they were all friends. And they became bandmates. And they became, you know, tour mates. Um, And with that, you know, you can go one of two ways. When your band becomes successful and you've got already, you know, a drug and alcohol addiction, you can either take more to help numb the pain and cure now the boredom on the road, or you can just say, stop and I'm not going to do it and leave a a, a clean lifestyle. But in taking a look at the last 20, 25 years of specifically lead singers that have passed away, whether you're Lane Stolle from 
Allison Chains or Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon or Andrew Wood, um, uh, you know, from Mother Love Bone. And of course, you know, Kurt Cobain from Nirvana. It seems that those lead singers were affected by, you know, their problems that just kept coming up. And now it looks like, you know, you can add Chris Cornell's name to that. And of course, his struggles with depression and mental illness uh, at the top of that list as well, because, uh, you know, it's one thing to talk about uh, dealing with uh, your day to day life with drugs and alcohol. But uh, people that deal with mental illness, that's one way they cope as well. Uh, Chris and Vicky Cornell, his wife, Vicky, had actually founded the Chris and Vicky Cornell Foundation in uh, the last couple of years, uh, offering support to children facing challenges, including homelessness, poverty, abuse and neglect. And so from that standpoint, uh, this this foundation uh, may have another pillar with which to speak. I, I know the family's requesting privacy right now, but is it critical at some point that, that Vicki Cornell come out and, and share Chris's story? I think so. Um, I, I hope that she does, and I think that she's a smart enough person to know that it fits neatly with her and Chris's foundation in in removing the stigma that comes with depression and, and comes with any sort of alcohol, um, like drug or alcohol addiction or any addiction for that matter that stops you from truly enjoying your life um, in, in the spirit of which, you know, most people would recommend that you um, live your life. And, and with that, I, I, I hope that she also is, is, I think, open enough to talk about it because on the surface, it doesn't look like that he was a prime candidate whatsoever to do something like this. They had several sold out shows on the, on the docket. They were weeks into the, the touring schedule with much more to go. It wasn't like Soundgarden was on the way down or playing nostalgia tours. They were just as relevant, just as active and just as, as popular selling out theaters around the world as, as they were, um, you know, in, in the past. So, you know, on paper, it looks like, wow, you know, there wasn't anything outwardly to at least a fan's perspective that would show that he was in an iota of depression state. But that just goes to show you, and it's another kind of lesson for us all, that sometimes we just never quite know what's going on in somebody else's head. Eric, when it comes to artists like this who take their own lives, do you think anything, any of it has to do with the fact that, and this is just an observation on my part, and I could be way off, but it, it seems to me that that talented artists like this seem to, to feel things on a deeper level than the average Joe. Do you think that contributes at all to this? I, I, absolutely. I think that you, you, you've got it exactly right on the money. Um, you know, it, it's one thing to be a lead singer of a band who maybe didn't write any of the material, such as, you know, uh, like a, a Phil Collins, for instance, back in the 70s, singing Peter Gabriel lyrics, for instance. But, you know, when you take a look at the, the sheer amount of lead singers specifically um, who who ended up taking their own life, you know, whether you know, it's Michael Hutchins from In Excess or Stuart Adamson from Big Country. Um, you know, the, Tommy Boyce, you know, recently, um, you know, Del Shannon, like just the list goes on and on and on when, when you talk about, um, you know, death by suicide. Uh, I think that, you know, th- there's so many factors, you know, <laughs> there used to be a great line that said um, that no matter how smart your keyboardist is, 
or how dumb your lead singer is. Everybody still wants to know from the lead singer what they think of world events. And I think it's it's a lot of pressure being put on singers specifically. Um, you know, they can't have an off day. They can't relax. They have to give it their all. And it's a strenuous job, you know. It, it looks like that, well, you know, they're touring the world and they get to play live for two hours. But I think part of it is just that sheer boredom and waiting around for, for the other 22 hours to pass until you're up there feeling really good about everything on stage. So I, I think you're exactly right that lead singers tend to feel a lot more. They tend to be a little bit more introspective, um, even if they're outwardly um, and, and showing a lot of really happy emotions. It's kind of like, kind of like that cliche about clowns, you know, like they're, they're smiling on the outside, but, but crying on the inside. Eric Alper, thanks for this insight. Thanks for the conversation. We appreciate it very much about Chris Cornell, who's uh, taken his own life at uh, 52. We always appreciate your insight into these stories, into these uh, individuals that millions of us are fascinated by and entertained by. Thanks, Eric. Absolutely. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it. Check out his website. Uh, it's full of musical expertise and uh, insight. That, ericalper.com. He's a great follow on Twitter. And tune in to Power 97 tonight between 6 and 7. Uh, Alan Cross, a good Manitoba boy, is going to uh, take us down a walk of walk down memory lane as it pertains to the lifetimes and music of Chris Cornell. It is 1.45. That means time for your forecast up next. As a personal feeling and on a personal note i try to avoid any conversation pertaining to the toronto blue jays wherever i can uh, <laughs> possibly do that as a lifelong montreal expos fan and now chicago cubs fan the blue jays are not my favorite team although i do admit to getting caught up in the fever of blue jays uh baseball uh, playoff baseball last year. Keith McCullough, my co-host on uh, Sports Sunday, Matt Accardi, a true blue dyed in the wool Toronto Blue Jays fan, uh, both join us in studio this afternoon. And uh, what is going on with Kevin Pillar? Tell us a story, Keith McCullough. Blue Jays outfielder uh, involved in an incident last night against the Atlanta Braves, another big loss for the struggling once again Toronto Blue Jays. And he got into a confrontation later in the game with one of the Braves pitchers. And it has uh, since come out that uh, in amongst the trash talking, let's say, between the two of them was a homophobic slur from Kevin Pillar directed at this pitcher uh, for the Atlanta Braves. Uh, to his credit, I think Pillar came out, Matt, right after the game and actually acknowledged what he'd said and apologized that right afterwards said he felt bad about it and he's since issued now another uh, public apology on social media but there's a there's a real fallout around this guys because guys can say things in the heat of the moment in sports games but when you say something like this whether it's a racial slur or whether it's a homophobic slur I think we can all agree that goes too far and there are now uh, a lot of calls around the sporting world and around the baseball world to potentially really bring the hammer down on Kevin Pillar, maybe even suspend him for a few games for what he said. And just to add to that, Keith, the reason that particular exchange happened was because the pitcher Jason Mott, uh, what they call in baseball, quick pitched Kevin Pillar for a strikeout. And quick pitch, usually what a pitcher would do is he would come set with the ball in his glove 
wait a second, and then throw. He didn't do that. He tapped the ball into his glove and then threw it and struck out Pilar. And that's why the exchange happened and calling him that homophobic slur. And I just want to read you the statement that Kevin Pilar put on put out on his Twitter account about 30 minutes ago. It says, last night, following my at-bat in the seventh inning, I used inappropriate language towards Braves pitcher Jason Mott. By doing so... I had just helped extend the use of a word that has no place in baseball, in sports, or anywhere in society today. I'm completely and utterly embarrassed and feel horrible to have put the fans, my teammates, and the Blue Jays organization in this position. I have apologized personally to Jason Mott, but I also need to apologize to the Braves organization and their fans, and most importantly, to the LGBTQ community for the lack of respect I displayed last night. This is not who I am, and I will use this as an opportunity to better myself. I just want to take a step aside from the apology for a moment. Uh, and I know that we all know I like to joke around about how little I know about sports, but it's safe to, also safe to say I know way less about sports than the three of you guys here. I've never heard of a quick pitch. It, Keith, I'll ask you uh, first. Is it is that a dirty tactic for a pitcher to use a quick pitch? It's not used very often. It's a it's sort of let's call it sneaky. You don't see it often. It's a little bit of a cheap play. Uh, these two teams have been going at it a little bit for the last few games. Mm-hmm. There were some other bad blood in the game yesterday. The Blue Jays, obviously, anyone who's followed the Jays have been really good. Suddenly, the last couple of years. They have not been very good this season. I think there's a lot of frustration for the players on the Blue Jays team, and obviously it boiled over in a totally inappropriate way for one of their star players in Kevin Pillar last night. The Blue Jays, after the statement from Pillar that that Matt just read, issued a statement of their own, essentially saying they're extremely disappointed in Kevin Pillar. They're talking to him about it. They've known him to be a real professional, a great guy. It doesn't look at this point like the Blue Jays as a team are going to take any action in terms of maybe suspending Kevin Pillar themselves. Major League Baseball certainly could still do that. I understand some of the higher ups uh, from the Blue Jays front office are actually in Atlanta right now where the Blue Jays are playing tonight to meet with Kevin Pillar, to meet with officials from Major League Baseball and I guess try to figure out where to go from here and i just wanted to add to that um keith you know you you say they may not take action but they have taken action before with a player who has used a homophobic slur and that was Junel escobar shortstop a couple of years ago he had something written in spanish on his eye black under his eyes that was a homophobic slur and he was suspended for three games by the team not by the league but by the team and if ross atkins the gm is flying to atlanta midway through this series it kind of tells me that some he is trying to put out this fire in one sense but he is going to speak to kevin and and I think, and I'm a Blue Jays fan here. I'm a big Kevin Pillar fan as well. I think he's a great outfielder. He's a great hitter. He's having Works a great hard. year. He's yeah. good in the community. But he's... a message I think needs mm-hmm. to be sent here. I know it was the heat of the moment, but what he said was completely wrong. And he said it in a statement. It has no place in baseball, in society, anywhere now. And we, we saw it in hockey too, right, Greg? Yep. With, uh, is it Andrew Shaw, I believe, who is then now with the Montreal Canadiens, was playing for the perennial uh, Stanley Cup contender Chicago Blackhawks a couple years ago and he was caught on camera calling a, a referee by a homophobic slur and that's the world we live in now these players can't get away with much because it's caught on camera 99% of the time and I believe he was he faced a, a one game suspension or a two game suspension for what he said uh, as well and he's been you know in the spotlight 
moving it forward from that for uh, for what he I said. I think Ra- Rajon Rondo was in some hot water over that as well. If I if a basketball correctly. player, yeah, that one got ugly. He said something to a referee, and the referee actually had to come out a week later and admit that he was homosexual. So that one. It certainly was, uh, stretched that one even. Crossed, yeah, that yeah, one crossed exactly. a real line. You know, I always get a kick out of, and not to make light of uh, of uh, Pilar's apology here, but I always get a kick out of these lines. This is not who I am. You know what, dude? That's exactly who you are. Because that word was right on the tip of your tongue in a situation that was a little bit hot for you, and that's where you went. So don't tell me that's not who you are. That's exactly who you are, and this, these words, these actions are still part of the culture, just like we talk about with hockey, with slashing and hooking and high-sticking. There's still that lack of respect for one another within the game. I know these guys are major competitors, but when you are in the heat of the battle, you go right to your core competence and who you are right. at your center. And I think in sports, they athletes have a really tough time controlling their composure, and you're probably right. That word was probably on the tip of his tongue as soon as he swung the bat and as soon as you know he threw his bat afterwards. And threw probably another F word before that, yeah, too. Yeah, probably. And I think if it was another F word, we wouldn't be here right now because those words come out all the time from athletes. And it's a fine line that we've seen move, guys, right over the years, where we're now, thankfully, at a place where this is completely unacceptable. Athletes get away. Any of us who've played sports know that some uh, some pretty inappropriate, pretty salty things are said, whether it's in a beer league hockey game or whether it's in a major league baseball game like this. But it's when we get to stuff where it becomes homophobic or where it becomes racial that it crosses the line and we've seen that line move a long way from where it was decades ago to where it is today that this has become a, a not just a sports conversation but this is trending on Twitter this has become a real mainstream topic of discussion what should happen to a star pro athlete who says a word like this I admitted to you guys one of my sons was watching the opposition warm up the other night he says oh batter can't or the pitcher can't pitch catcher can't catch really at 11 he's trash talking <laughs> and then what happened uh, the batter couldn't bat. He struck out. <laughs> Justice prevailed. Keith McCullough and Matt Cardi, thank you so much for joining us today. Two sharply dressed men with better hair than Greg and I. Well, at least uh, me. I don't want to speak for you, Greg. News is coming up next. 2.05. As we make our way towards the May long weekend, Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry with you. And we may be about to embark on a conversation. Well, we are about to embark on a conversation with an individual. He may be the most famous, most successful person you've never heard of. His name is Joe Nesbo. He is an author. His latest book is The Thirst. And he is going to be at an event at McNally Robinson tonight. At 7 o'clock, the internationally best-selling Norwegian crime writer will be appearing at McNally Robinson Booksellers at Grant Park. And he joins us now live in studio to tell us about his latest book and all the cool things he does. Joe, welcome to 680 CJOB. Thank you. So before we get into, because Greg described you earlier as a true renaissance man, so we want to get into that. But we want to know first and foremost, who is... Detective Harry Hole. Uh, Harry Hole is um, a, a complex character. Is a is is a man of contradictions. Is um, uh, on one hand he's a, he's a cynic. He's a romantic loner. He's a, an outsider. He's probably more related to the criminals he are chasing than his colleagues at the police house in Oslo. 
Um, on the other hand, he is uh, a specialist on uh, serial killers, um, and uh, there are more serial killing going on in my books than there probably uh, have been in the whole of uh, Scandinavia for the last 20 years, I guess. But uh, but still, this is serious. That's been going on for uh, this is the 11th book in the series, the the first. Uh, and it started actually in, in, in Australia and, and then in Bangkok and then it moved back to Oslo. So it's uh, uh, right now it's uh, sort of a series where um, I'd say the city of Oslo has sort of become a character in the, in the series. It's interesting you mentioned that because we've had the discussion about Winnipeg becoming a character uh, in Hollywood. You just Winnipeg has certain characteristics, and you just have to use the word Winnipeg in association with a character or, a, or as a setting, and really don't have to describe very much else. Mm. And you know, in terms of Oslo, I've never been to uh, Norway or nor to Oslo uh, by <laughs> by connection. But that idea of Oslo becoming a character, maybe you could expand on that idea a little bit more. Yeah, well, it's uh, uh, I guess the image of uh, of Oslo is being this innocent uh, village in the outskirts of. Uh, of Europe and and it was that you know uh, up until the eighties I guess when the when the city started changing um, and it opened up to the rest of the world and but up until then I think still people in in Europe they see Oslo as this really uh, peaceful uh, city with uh, no crime no violence and to a certain extent that is true but on the other hand you have the dark side of Oslo which makes it even more interesting because you have this dark side on the background of 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 the innocence and uh, uh the dark side is that you know it is it's, it's been a worst city in um, uh, for drugs in uh, in Europe for uh, since the seventies. You you had more deaths from overdoses than in any other city, and um, I think it's these extremes that makes the city so interesting for me. And in addition to the fact that I, that I live there and I'm lazy, so it's um, easy to you know use. <laughs> Use Oslo. Uh, yeah. You're lazy, so it's just easy. yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's what's around me. Uh, you know, Harry Hole. When I started writing about him, he would uh, um, he would actually live in the same apartment I was living. He would go to the same places I would go. He would more or less be me, so I didn't have to do much research. <laughs> Well, you mentioned that word lazy, and I don't want to, you know, build on your reputation and your self-deprecation there, but, you know, uh, school was something that you really didn't pay much mind to, right? In your personal life and growing up, you had it all figured out. You were going to be a professional soccer player and who the heck needs school, right? Yeah, exactly. It was, no, it's, uh, um, I started, uh, I guess I was the kind of guy who, who, um, I, um, you know, um, school was easy for me. Sports were easy for me. Uh, I, I, I didn't respect hard work. I only respected talent. And when school got a little bit harder in, in, in high school, um, I would skip the classes, you know, uh, uh, maths and physics and uh, stuff like that. It was a little bit more complicated. So I was this, I, I like to, you know, surf through life just do the things I uh, I was good at. 
Um, but then I uh, and I, I had this naive idea I was going to be play professionally for Tottenham Hotspur in London. That was sort of my dream and uh, a quite realistic one the way I saw it. And then I broke the ligaments in, uh, and, and and I played in Norwegian um, uh, Premier League, which well to be honest doesn't say much. But uh, um, uh, anyway, you know that was my plan. So then I broke the ligaments in both knees, and uh, I, you know, my career was suddenly over. I was uh, 19 years old, and I had to come up with a plan B. And uh, I didn't have the grades to go to the universities I wanted to go to. So suddenly, I uh, I realized that um, um, you know the surf is over. <laughs> I have to. It looks like I have to sit down and do some hard work for the first time in my life. And um, I guess that's um, those years after high school when I uh, I actually uh, I went to the army. Uh, I went to the north tip of uh, Norway where uh, it's a little bit like the north of Canada. Nobody lives there, you know, just you and some polar bears and um, there I sat and I took high school all over again uh, and it was the first time in my life that I actually took the initiative to to, to do some, set myself a goal and do that and I think that that for me was the best school for later in life writing novels which is the same thing there's nobody you know telling you you have to get to work today uh, uh, there's no hours there's just you and the novel and um the goal to 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 write the novel in you know a year or two years. Joe Nesbo is our guest. He is the best-selling Norwegian crime writer. He is going to be appearing at McNally Robinson Booksellers tonight at seven o'clock for a signing of his new novel, The Thirst. He sold over thirty million books, by the way, thirty million books. This is the eleventh book in the series based on Detective. Harry Hole. And Joe, I just wanted to circle back to something you said that Oslo has had the most uh, drug-related deaths since the 1970s. Uh, did I hear that correctly? Or, or, or they did during the 70s and the 80s. And it didn't get much better in the 90s uh, either. But it was like Amsterdam and Oslo. Uh, those were, you know, the bad cities in in Europe at, the, at that time. And... Uh, and nobody really knows why heroin became such a big, big drug in uh, in in Oslo. It just uh, it just happened. And has that improved over the last twenty well, years or so? Um, well, um, not really. Uh, the numbers are uh, during the nineties were still uh, going up. They have stabilized uh, a little bit uh, now, but it but it's still a, a a big problem. You mentioned Amsterdam. Is there? A reason why Oslo has decided to not go down the same path as Amsterdam, in, in terms of legalization. Um, no, uh, not really. You know, um, um, I think you know Dutch politics and uh, Norwegian politics are often more or less the same. But uh, no, they um, they didn't. I wanted to ask you about. Uh, there's a genre. Uh, it's it's become a genre of television now, uh, and I, I suppose not just television. It's called Nordic Noir mm-hmm. because of shows like The Bridge, which is based out of Denmark and Sweden, or or shows like Trapped out of Iceland. And it's it's crossed over into North America, where shows being made here in Canada, for example, are being described as. Nordic noir from this pocket of planet Earth uh, where you call yourself or which which you call home. So I'm wondering what, why do you think Nordic noir has been so embraced 
by people from all over the planet? I have no idea. <laughs> really, no. I get that question a lot, and I, 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 I try to come across as you know, uh, intelligent and smart, and uh, and give a reasonable answer to that. But I, I, I really have no idea. It's it's a little bit like you know. Um, I can remember when I grew up uh, that uh, uh, literature from South America at the time was popular. You know, it's uh, um, and. Uh, um, so it's, I think it's a little bit coincidence, but then again, hopefully, um, it has to do with the quality of the writing. Uh, what happened in the seventies in um, in um, Scandinavia was that there was a couple of Swedish writers, Sjöval and Balder, with the Beck series, who um, had the political agenda for their writing, but more importantly, they were really good writers. So they would take the the crime fiction from the kiosks and into the serious bookstores and uh, it made it you know probably more prestigious to write crime fiction in uh, in Scandinavia than in many other countries so it recruited a young uh, a lot of young t- talented writers so there's a ever since the 70s 80s there would be a lot of brilliant crime writers in in Scandinavia then on the other hand there there would be just as many lousy crime writers as <laughs> anywhere else We'll take a break. We come back. A true Renaissance man uh, knows how to play guitar. And uh, Joe does just that. We'll uh, share that with you, part of his story and uh, the story of loss and how it's inspired him throughout his life. Uh, More conversation with our new friend, Joe Nesbo, as Brett was telling you. He uh, will be at McNally Robinson Booksellers at Grand Park uh, Centre tonight. We'll tell you all about that as we continue this afternoon. He's Brett. I'm Greg. Har jag skrivit från en havneby i ett land dypt i That is Joe Nesbo on guitar and lead vocals, yes? He is uh, the lead singer in this case of Didier. The song is Sick, S-Y-K, or Sick in English, as you're telling me, Joe. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your uh, musical career. Uh, well, it's uh, sort of... Um, when I was a teenager, I, I I I wasn't in the band. I didn't even play the guitar. I I just wrote the lyrics for my friends' bands, um, uh, which was sort of my school for writing novels later in life. And uh, it wasn't until I was in uh, um, in college that a guy walked into um, um, into a room and you know um, in the cafeteria and, and shouted out, "Does anybody here play the guitar and want to be want to play in my band?" And I raised my hand and said, yeah, I, I can play the guitar. Yeah, how, how many chords do you know? And I said, three chords, uh, which wasn't true. I only knew two, but um, <laughs> I got the I got the job. So uh, I started playing in a band then. And then later on, we we moved to um, to Oslo. And um, I formed the band there with my brother and two, uh, two friends from uh, our little city, Molde, on the West Coast. And we uh, persuaded... Um, the bass player's boss who run the bar that we could play there live there. They didn't usually have live music, but we played there every Saturday. And we were so bad that um, we would change the name of the band every Saturday so that people would come back. Uh, and, uh, and in uh, in the end, and and we got you know after after a year or two we got better. So people actually started 
asking for it. Are, are, are those guys going to play, play you know, uh, on Saturday? And so we ended up um, taking that as uh, the name for the band, those guys or Didara. Those guys. Those guys. I love it. That's a great translation. Our guest is Joe Nesbo. He is the best-selling Norwegian crime writer. He's going to be at McNally Robinson tonight at 7 o'clock for his latest book on Detective Harry Hole. It's called The Thirst. He sold over 30 million books, and uh, including several standalone novels, and the Dr. Proctor series of children's books. What does Dr. Proctor do? Uh, well, he, Dr. Proctor is an inventor, and uh, he, uh, um, he has invented a, a fart powder, uh, which originally was to uh, prevent people from farting. So it was a <laughs> kind of powder that you would could use, you know, before serious business meetings or funerals and stuff like that. Uh, but it didn't sell really well, so along comes this little guy, Nilly, um, who gives the professor the idea to reverse the formula. So uh, it makes people, you know, uh, uh, fart really powerful farts. Uh, so uh, <laughs> the guys are laughing. Here. So I want to read this why. book. Um, and it's uh, so the plan is to um, to sell it to NASA so they can shoot people directly into space instead of having to build this, you know, uh, expensive rockets. Yeah, it sounds amazing. What's your? Do you have a website by the way where you can go to get all these books? Yeah. I think I have. I, I, I don't run it myself, but it's, uh, yeah, you know, it's pre- something I'm pretty sure there. it's joenesbo.com. But uh, yeah. you wanted to ask about one of the books uh, being converted to a movie, Brett. Yes, one of your previous uh, Harry Hole books, The Snowman, is being turned into a, a major film starring Michael Fassbender, who is going to play Detective Harry Hole. What's your, what was your reaction to that when you found out that one of your books is going to be a major Hollywood production? Well, I actually... F- for many years, I I, I uh, turned down the offers I got for TV series and uh, and and movies because I was still writing the series and uh, I was worried that you know the the movie is such a strong medium compared to the book so that it would sort of uh, uh, you know take away my my Harry and my readers Harry and, and define him. But I I when I was asked about this by journalists why I said no, I always. Well, I explained this, but always added, but if Martin Scorsese calls, I might reconsider. And that was actually, um, that's what happened. Or his agent, called my agent, I guess. So so now Martin Scorsese is going to be the producer on the movie. And uh, Thomas Alfredson, uh, the Swedish director, who directed Let the Right One In. And uh, Tinker Taylor's All Your Spy is going to direct it. And uh, I was really happy when uh, I heard they had picked uh, Michael Fassbender as uh, as Harry. Of course, it doesn't look like Harry. I guess nobody looks like Harry or the Harry in my mind. And probably not the, the Harrys in the minds of my readers either. But uh, he's, he's a really good actor. I, I remember I saw him for the first time in Shame. And he was brilliant in that movie. So I, I I think it's a good choice. Joe, we just have a minute or so here, but I do want to ask you about your brother. You lost your brother several years ago. And is he always with you? Just curious as to the effect uh, he continues to have on you. Yeah. Yeah, he's there. I, I mean, he was in my band. He was, uh, he was on my left side. Um, now we have uh, um, a girl has taken his place. Uh Nibil Helmsen, who's a famous singer-songwriter in, in, in Norway in, a, in her own right. 
um, and a brilliant guitarist. But um, I, I still sometimes uh, turn to when we're having a great gig in front of a great old audience and they're singing along with our songs. Uh, I, I still sometimes turn to the left, and um, um, he's not there, and um, that's um, that's sort of sad. But um, that's life. Joe Nesbo is going to be at McNally Robinson tonight at 7 o'clock. He is a best-selling Norwegian crime writer. He has sold over 30 million books. That is incredible. He'll be doing a signing of his latest book on Detective Harry Hole. It's called The Thirst, and it is being co-presented by the Norwegian Canadian Club and the Scandinavian Centre here in Winnipeg, and the event is free and open to everyone. Joe, what a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. The news is coming up next. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry, Carolyn Clausen, her regular time slot with us Thursday afternoon from 2.30 till 3. We love it when Carolyn comes to visit us. And uh, it's not too often that she has to say, I can't make it. Today is not one of those days. We're going to talk about loyalty today. And loyalty has been in the news to a certain extent because the President of the United States was demanding Loyalty, unabashed loyalty mm-hmm. from FBI Director James Comey. And when Comey couldn't pledge that, well, sounds as though it cost him his job, Brett. And we also had a, we talked about a story, I think it was just yesterday, Greg, where it was uh, revolving the, involving the Nashville Predators who they punted out their longtime national anthem singer. Uh, what was his name? I've already forgotten. Morgan is his last name. That's any part of the point. I've already forgotten his name. But yeah, I, that I'll, is part I'll, of the point. They they shuffled him aside to let in people like Carrie Underwood to mm. sing. So that sort of triggered uh, some thoughts of loyalty, a conversation of loyalty. And Greg, do you have a piece of audio here that you wanted to use to set this up? I really do. It's uh, from a movie called The Ides of March. It was a George Clooney film featuring uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ryan Gosling before he became really became a superstar. Here's a scene that I think defines some people's view of loyalty to a T. The first campaign I ran is a tiny little race in Kentucky, um, state senate seat, you know, working for some redneck nobody named Sam McGuthrie. No staff, no money, no f-ing office. Everyone thought we didn't stand a chance. No way we can compete, right? And about this time, this guy running this uh, congressional campaign a few districts over gives me a call. And he says, I really like what you're able to do for poor old Sam. But let's face it, he's a goner. Why don't you come work for me? What did I do? Well, Stephen, this is where you and I are different. I told Sam about the call. And Sam says to me, Paul, if you think this other guy's got a chance at winning and he can pay you more than anything I can afford, and if it's what you feel you need to do, then I won't get in your way. And I say, Sam, you took a chance on me and hired me when I was even more of a nobody than you are. So I'd be damned if I'm going to jump ship just because the shit hits the fan. We lost that race, but three years later when Sam decided to run for governor, who do you think he called? We won that race, and 20 years later I am where I am now. Now, there's only one thing I value in this world, Stephen, and that's loyalty. And without it, you are nothing. And you have no one. It's the only currency you can count on. That's why I'm letting you go. Not because you're not good enough, not because I don't like you, but I value trust over skill. And I don't trust you anymore. I value trust over skill. Is trust an essential element of loyalty, Carolyn? 
Well, I think trust and loyalty are closely connected, but what I would say is they're actually fairly different. Um, they, they One lends itself to the other, but I think a lot of people demand loyalty without trust, um, and some might say that has something to do with, with what's happening south of the border, um, where there's loyalty, he's demanding loyalty without trust, um, and trust often involves um, something that you earn, whereas loyalty is something that you expect or you demand. Uh, and so while they're, they have something to do with each other, they're actually quite separate. Um, and I think what that clip so accurately shows is that loyalty often plays the long game and says, I'm going to hang in with you and I'm going to be okay even when it's not okay. Um, and there's, there's trust that's built out of that. And that although you settle in for the short-term pain, you get long-term gain because of the trust and relationship that is built when you're loyal, even when on the surface it doesn't make sense. A person can feel that trust build, and it's a beautiful thing. Why are some people more loyal or more inclined to be loyal than others? Well, and what I would say is that we're always loyal to something. Um, but the challenge is, what are you loyal to? And so in that clip... Um, what the fellow decided was I'm loyal, more loyal to the man than I am to my current paycheck, right? Um, whereas a lot of times now we are encouraged to play more of a short game and to be loyal to our career aspirations. And so if I can get farther faster with a different company, I'm not going to be loyal to the company. I'm going to be loyal to my career. And so I think there's shifting now about that people aren't always loyal to people in the way that they were 40 or 50 years ago. They're loyal to their careers or to their finances or to um, different kinds of goals to their dreams in a way that is different than being loyal to a person. That idea of confusing loyalty with trust. Why do we do that? Because I think loyalty is something that you can um, demand or expect or you can command loyalty. I'm obligated to... um, I expect loyalty from you and you better be loyal. And it's kind of a very short term, very quick thing to expect. And trust is something that's developed and built over time. And trust is playing the long game and it's showing up again and again and again. Whereas loyalty is just something like, say, you better give it to me. Whereas trust is, I plan to earn it and I plan to keep it because I intend to remain trustworthy. And so they're related, but they're, they're not the same. And there's a safety in trust that you don't necessarily have with loyalty. Uh, for example, the loyalty of, with the uh, Nashville Predators, they, it's not, there wasn't a relationship. When, the, when, the, when it got really cool and they could invite a superstar, they did. They didn't stay loyal to that guy. And so th- there, isn't, there wasn't trust there. there. And he thought there was loyalty, and then you find out that there isn't really. Yeah, I uh, in terms of loyalty, I often wonder, can it be a bad thing? Like I like to think of of uh, loyalty in terms of a character trait as a good thing, but is there a moment where it can be a bad thing where you just like blind loyalty can lead you astray? Well, and I think there's a bunch of differences, a bunch of dangers of loyalty. For one thing, loyalty can make you complacent, right? Um, sometimes couples, when they get married then they're like, well, you're stuck with me. And so they're not quite as diligent about helping out around the house or about maintaining the relationship as it was when they were dating for years, where there's this complacency where no matter what I do, she's not going anywhere. And so I can kind of let my behavior drop off. Um, And there's a sort of expectation of loyalty that says my behavior doesn't have to demand trust in quite the same way, right? And so the complacency that can develop out of loyalty is not necessarily a good thing. 
sometimes loyalty can actually do harm to the relationship because if I'm going to be loyal to you to such an extent that I'm not going to give you the truth, then we're both going to suffer because I am not going to say some of the hard things, perhaps out of a sense of loyalty, and then uh, it's not going to... It's not going to further the purposes of what you're moving forward with if I feel like because of my loyalty, I'm not going to tell you some of the hard truths that I think you need to hear and have you get upset with me. I'm just going to be a smiling yes man. That loyalty is dangerous in those situations. You know, people talk a lot about this finding their genuine self. And, you know, loyalty to self sometimes is is sometimes not a very common commodity. I think sometimes we put so much loyalty and trust in others that the loyalty to be true to ourselves might be the last thing on the list for a lot of people. Right. And I think we have to be aware of we are always loyal to something. What are we being loyal to? And I think there's other people that are loyal to themselves in a way that decreases the loyalty with others. Mm. um, And they pay a price too. And eventually it's not even helpful to who they are and to further their own goals, right? So I think it's always recognizing I am loyal to something. Am I being loyal to myself? Am I being loyal to others at a level and at a balance that makes sense? It sounds like it's a constant evaluation process, and that's often the message I get from you. I would hope that it would be. The challenge is that it's not, right? Like there, for example, some people, you're born into a certain family, and you know which political party you need to be loyal to no matter what happens, right? And that if you're blindly loyal to something, then you don't use your judgment, and you don't say, "Is is there a limit at which my loyalty I need to reevaluate this and I might not want to continue being loyal to something. And I encourage that with couples too. I'm a marriage therapist. I work with couples because I believe in marriage. I want people to work at their marriages. But every once in a while, I get a couple that comes along and because of the factors that are happening and the destruction that's happening between the two of them, I, I, you know, is this the best thing to remain loyal to each other given how one or both of you is being hurt in this relationship? Is it ethical to continue the loyalty? Well, do we associate being loyal to being a, a good person and let me let me use an example to paint a picture and uh, I don't have the clip handy but I think of a, a Seinfeld episode where Jerry is is n- no longer happy with the person who cuts his hair and he goes to such lengths to hide the fact that he's decided he want he's going to get I think it's his the guy's son is now going to cut his hair so he's gone out he can't just tell him straight to his face you know what I don't want to work with you anymore. I'm going to go this way. He's so loyal to him that he just can't tell him we're done. I, I, it, And that's not just a Seinfeld episode, right? You ask any woman who has somebody that they've been cutting their hair, it's to sort of go get somebody else to cut your hair. You feel like you're having a hair affair, right? Like <laughs> that there's sort of some level of infidelity to the person that you've been loyal to. Uh, but I think what it, what it recognizes is that part of loyalty is... Um, is sort of being in touch with what feels safe and what feels routine and kind of that sense of nostalgia reminding us of our roots. And um, part of loyalty is because change is hard. And so when you're seeing a certain person to cut your hair for you know, years and years, to think about changing, even if it's going to be good for your head, it's hard on your heart because part of getting your hair cut is that visit or going back and sort of having hearing him say the same old lousy jokes. That's part of the routine. 
of it is knowing what's going to happen, and that part feels good. And so there's a sense of loss when you choose to make a different choice, and it feels disloyal because there's part of us that we like the routine and the safety of being loyal to certain people in certain places. I've been loyal to the same barber, by the way, for 28 years. I've got to give a shout to Tony's Barber Shop on Regent. Joe's been cutting my hair since I was 11 years old. Oh, and, that's awesome! Yeah, and I do. There have been times over the years where I he's now in an appointment system, but before it was just you show up and you, you wait sometimes for two and a half hours, <laughs> and I'd sit there and read Sports Illustrated or GQ or whatever. But uh, the odd time where I couldn't make it down there, I'd go to the place in the mall or whatever, and I would always feel bad. I'd be sitting there in the shop, the girls cutting my hair, and I'd just be looking at my... I couldn't even look at myself in the mirror. <laughs> like, you cheater! You're cheating on Joe! And to carry on our conversation about loyalty with Carolyn Clausen, who is a therapist at Connexus Counseling, the website connexuscounseling.ca. Weather is up next. 250 on this Thursday afternoon, heading into the May long weekend. There was a survey that came out uh, earlier this week. We're visiting with Carolyn Clausen, by the way. I'm Greg. He is Brett. And uh, Carolyn can be found at uh, connexuscounseling.com or here. .ca, actually. Oh, sorry. CA. I knew that. Going off my poor memory. Um, or you can find her here at 2.30 on Thursdays. <laughs> um there was a uh, a new survey that came out that said Mountain Equipment Co-op, CAA, and Costco topped the list of brands Canadians trust the most. And if you're in a setting where you're in marketing, that translates into something they call brand loyalty. How do those brands build loyalty? And Brett, you made a really good point. Some of them have these reward miles and these reward programs uh, or loyalty programs. Are they buying our loyalty to a certain extent? Sure. Yeah. I mean, some people like free movies, and so they join certain loyalty programs so that they can get the prizes, whatever um, the bonuses that accumulate uh, over time in accordance with whatever is important to them. I think there's a lot of companies that have those loyalty programs to build business. Um, I think what they're, what we're realizing is that while it's people like some of the, the gimmicks and the, the buying of the loyalty, that there's who, who wouldn't like to have free stuff of whatever is important to them, people also realize that it's about relationship and connection. We're wired for relationship and connection and that when you earn trust, there's a different sort of loyalty that happens. And so some of the companies that have very generous return policies or are very human and sort of acknowledging that they're not perfect and they're willing to listen to your customer complaints and so forth, they develop a different sort of loyalty. And those companies, I think, play the long game and they often do better, I think, in the long run. Well, you know what's funny? I'm just sitting here and I just realized as I'm looking at Mountain Equipment Co-op, you have to be a member. You have to buy a, a membership, a one-time $5 or $10 mm-hmm. fee. CAA, you need an annual membership. You actually pay to be a part of the group, as you do with Costco. The top three most trusted brands, you have to buy your way into the club. Right. And and so there's a recognition that when you invest, and we know that um, even as therapists, when, when we... Um, 
some places that offer services for free, you won't get people won't show up with a greater with a you know as as often as when they're investing and that they're also contributing and paying for services, right? That when you contribute something, there's a perception of investment, and that you are going to be loyal as well, uh, and that there's a sort of a shared loyalty to each other. Um, the companies that you've mentioned, they're also really I find them to be respectful and generous, and we you can talk to them, and that they're human, and it's not just you know, too bad, so sad for you when you have a concern that they'll address it. And th- those are, that for me, that was, that's what build, builds loyalty to me is when they develop a connection where it feels like there's respect that goes both ways. Uh, to you listening to this radio station, this is about to be one of those behind-the-curtain moments, as we like to refer to here, because just before we return from the forecast, I said to Carolyn, any other points here that you want to make sure we, we hit? And she said something to me, and I've promptly forgotten it. So... <laughs> So what was I supposed to ask you, Carolyn? Well, what we were going to talk about was was how loyalty is um, is actually something that we like about loyalty, right? That there is something where you drive to Transcona to get your hair cut because that's routine and familiar. And even though it's a pain, it's something that works for you and it's a bit of a buffer. And loyalty is a way of Let me make- just clarify. It's not a pain because it's Transcona. It's a pain because I have to drive through rush hour traffic. Right. Yes. And and you probably pass two dozen hair places that you get your hair cut sooner on the way, right? You choose to make that drive, that that distance. Thank you for the clarification. Sure. <laughs> but loyalty has you, it's a bit of a buffer. Um, loyalty says, I have an allegiance to something and I'm going to give it some time. And so even if there's a hiccup or a bump, I don't have to question, I don't have to switch. I'm going to hang in there. And it provides a bit of a buffer and a bit of an, I'm going to be okay even if we're not okay. It sort of allows for grace and forgiveness and to say, I'm, I have a loyalty to you, and so we don't have to be perfect with each other for me to know that I'm going to hang in there with you. And so it decreases some of the tension of decision-making. If you know you know, this person's a friend of mine, um, they're not perfect. If they forget something, I'm loyal enough to them that it, it's not going to destroy our friendship. We don't have to rework out if this friendship is worth it or not. I'm loyal enough that we can absorb some of the imperfections that go on. And so loyalty is actually something that's good for all of us because it decreases the tension and the decision-making in our lives. Does there have to be at least the perception of it being a two-way street? I'm thinking about those that become sports fanatics, Mm -hmm. right? Fanaticism, sports in particular, Mm -hmm. where maybe you feel as though you have sort of some sort of control over whether your team wins or not because you wore the right shirt. You're not shaving. Or... Right, or you did, did the right routine. Or if they lose, oh my gosh, it was all my fault. They said the word shutout, what have you. All these stupid little yeah. things that, that sports fans uh, uh, trick themselves into believing that they had some sort of effect on the outcome. Well, I did something, yeah. therefore, A equals B, A plus B equals C. And of course... There's very little to suggest that there's any correlation between the three, but in our heads. Sure. I think the wonderful thing about loyalty to sports teams is sometimes it doesn't make sense. Um, sometimes um, people sort of jump ship and jump jump to a different team with loyalties. You're allowed to, you know, have some flexibility about that. But You what- are? <laughs> we, we'll have to have a whole hour oh, on sorry. that. Oh, sorry. Okay. Forget I said that. <laughs> Forget I said that last part. Um, but what loyalty to a team does is it allows you to join 
into something that's greater than yourself. And because we're wired for connection, it feels good to be a part of a movement, right? It's wonderful to be able to go have a drink at the bar and watch the game along with everybody else who's cheering for the same team and you all rise up and start cheering at the same moment. There, There's wonder, one, it's just a good feeling of connection that happens when we share loyalty to something along with people around us. Um, it's good for us and we need to do that. It, it, it calls us to something greater than ourselves and it feels good. Carolyn Clausen is a therapist with Conexus Counseling. You can read her blog and get more information on how to get in touch with her at ConnexusCounseling.ca. 307 Thursday afternoon. Keep it locked here for traffic, weather, sports, news, you name it. We've got it uh, right through until 7 o'clock. Richard and Julie will pop into the studio at 4 o'clock or just before and uh, get you set up and take you home with the news. I'm Greg. He's Brett. And a special event in our community we wanted to bring to your attention with a special guest in the studio. We get news releases all day, every day, and sometimes headlines just jump out at you. And this one, I think the combination of the fact that it came from the city made it even more instantly recognizable because it's really uncommon to see something like this from the city. The headline is Drag Queen Storytime. Holds court at Winnipeg Public Library, and it did its job. It instantly caught my attention, and we have brought in Levi Foy, who is the founder of the Like That program at Sunsh- uh, Sunshine House. Pardon me. Levi, thank you very much for joining us in studio today. Thank you for having me. So this event that is happening this weekend, Saturday, uh, and then again on Wednesday, May 31st, at the Winnipeg Public Library, it's called Red by Queens. Tell us about it. So the event is uh, our take on the traditional library story time. So throughout the year, the library will invite different people to come in and do uh, do story time. So the gold eyes do it and the ballet will do it. And uh, and we were like, well, we should do this too. It, it, should, it would be really fun. It would be great to have a bunch of drag queens just kind of invade the library and kids kind of do their thing with us. So we approached the library and... They made it happen. We made it happen, and that's that's kind of that's the backstory to it. It's just it's going to be a fun, interesting event for families and drag queens. So you're using the collective we. Who is we in this case? So we in this case, of course, is the library, uh, and then some of the folks that I work with through the Like That program. Some of the kings and queens from there, and then some other local drag queens that have that are prominent and that are doing other t- types of work in the city. So we have like famous girls like. Victoria and Gloria, and uh, and then some of the other local queens through the through a different organization. For those who may like, I think the the term drag queen I think is fairly recognizable. But for those who are unfamiliar with what exactly a drag queen is, can you explain that to us? Uh, well, drag queen is generally uh, somebody who is who looks in their day to day life looks and looks like a man, and then on the weekends or for special events will will get dolled up in ultra-feminine, hyper-feminine uh, clothing and makeup and and just go out in the world and try our best to be glamazons. Glamazons! <laughs> That's a term I've never heard. I've long heard drag queens, but never glamazons. So so is this like a, 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 a dual expression of who you are? You know, it, here, you and I have been 
talking for almost 15 minutes now. We realize we've got some people in common. We were talking about the good old days in Western Manitoba, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so is this a, you know, we're sitting here with you right now and getting a representation of you and having a conversation with one individual who is, who is your alter ego or, or am I framing that in the wrong fashion? Educate us here. Okay. So uh, for myself personally, yeah, it is it is an alter ego. It's also a, a time for me to tap into kind of my my feminine side and to to be extra expressive in that way. Although when I do drag, I don't do anything to alter my voice. I just keep my voice always kind of the same. I, I like I, particularly with children, it's really fun because when we're in drag, they'll be like, "Oh, you look so pretty," and then you're like, "Thank you." <laughs> <laughs> they, they get a little terrified. Their their minds do some jumping, and uh, but. For, yeah, for a lot of us, we get to to kind of express ourselves that way. And like and I've found that through my experiences in the drag community that for some folks, this might be the first time that they can ex- experience life being their authentic selves. So then they can start maybe transitioning from from male to female or female to male th- through through just the idea of toying with gender and gender representations and and those types of things. So so for a lot of us, it is. It is a, a very personal affair. And then for other people, it, it is, it's personal in a sense that it, they get to be a completely different character than what they are. So we'll have a couple of girls who, who, um, who will be there and, the, and their take on drag is just really, uh, really campy, really fun, really, really avant-garde and stuff. So, what, like, so that's the beauty of drag. You just get to express kind of these crazy identities that you might have lingering inside of you or these really beautiful identities that are inside of you as well. What's your drag queen identity? My drag queen identity is Prairie Sky. Um, she's, I, I've modeled it off of the, the, the Prairie Skies. I, I did a lot of traveling from northern, northwestern Ontario into Manitoba. And uh, you, when you hit the Prairie Sky, it's always big and it's vast and it's huge and it's always beautiful and it's always different and that's kind of and it's unapologetic and it can be harsh and it can be soft and it can, that's that's kind of what I go for with my drag aesthetic and my drag identity is somebody who's really loud um really big and just you can't kind of ignore that person so you know forgive me here but you might be accused for for being confused about who you are uh, but when I hear that description of Prairie Sky, uh, it seems to me you know exactly who you are, and you are connected with uh, yourself and different parts of yourself in a way that most of us could only imagine and hope to be. I, I'm really fortunate in the sense that that that's what drag has allowed me to do because it's it's allowed me to tap into all of these really different things that I never knew that I that were a part of me, and particularly because in my in my male role, I'm not as, I'm, I'm not as out there. I'm not, I'm, I'm still unapologetic and I'm six foot two flat footed. So I'm kind of, people kind of notice me and stuff, but I'm not, it's, I'm relatively unassuming. But when I'm in, when I'm in drag, this, I get to be this, this thing. And I'm super, I'm super lucky that drag has allowed me to do that. I wanted to ask you about, because I'm sure that there will be some people or some parents who, who think, well, uh, this is a, a family event with drag queens. Have you have you met any sort of negativity or resistance to this idea from concerned parents or just people with concerns at all? Um, not out front. I know that it exists. Um, and my kind of response to that would be like, if if you're afraid of 
educating your children or other people about different forms of self-expression, there's nothing that I can do to help you with that. That's that's something that you have to kind of deal with on your own. Education should never be something about should never be something that's being feared. So if you're if you're afraid to if you think that drag queens or gender expression, alternative gender expressions or multiple gender expressions are something that's that's negative I'm not going to do much to change your mind. That's something that you'll have to do on your own sort of thing. Uh, and then the other common criticism that we'll get is like, oh, I hope they turn down the sexuality of it and blah, blah, and, and the swearing or whatever, because we all were a little bit, we can be a little, drag, drag has, a, has like a, a history, I guess, of pushing envelopes and stuff. But again, we, we're artists. We'll, we'll play to our audience. Right, right. And we'll... We'll we'll tone it down. Yeah, we'll, and we'll recognize that it's children. And we can't swear. Yeah, and we've got we've got a text here. Of course, drag queens with kids, creepy, right? There, there's that. That's going to be uh, a common, uh, no, maybe an all too common uh, take on this. And that's why we've invited you here to to talk about this. When we uh, take a pause, check traffic and weather, and continue our our conversation with uh, Levi Foy, founder of the Like That program at Sunshine House. We'll find out a little bit more about the Like That program and Sunshine House itself as we continue this afternoon. I'm Greg, he's Brett. I'm Brett, he is Greg, and our guest is Levi Foy, who is the founder of the Like That program at Sunshine House. And Levi is going to be a part of an event coming up at the Winnipeg Public Library. Uh, It's Saturday, May 20th, so this Saturday, and then again Wednesday, May 31st. First at so the Saturday event is at the Millennium Library, and then Wednesday, May thirty first, is at the West End Library. It's called Red by Queens, a family story time event led by local drag queens. Levi Foy's drag queen identity is Prairie Sky, and wanted to ask you before we run out of time here, what is Sunshine House? Sunshine House is a is a drop in center. We do a lot of community program. We're a relatively underfunded, we're a severely underfunded organization who does a lot of participant-driven programming for people who live and work and do recreational activities in the in the inner city. We're at the corner of Logan and Sherbrooke. We have three kind of core programs that we do. We have our Sunday brunch, which we make accessible for people within the neighborhood. So you come in, pay two bucks, you get you get a really nice brunch meal. Then we have our Monday and Wednesday drop-in, which is open for folks who who are doing who are just around. Um, people can come in, you do some arts and crafts, there's recreational stuff, there's always food. We have uh, some laundry facilities and stuff like that. And uh, if you've ever heard of JD and the Sunshine Band, that they kind of were born out of that, out of that, that drop-in program. And then, of course, we have the Like That program, which is geared towards folks who are, who may or may not identify under the GLBTQS plus uh, spectrum. Um, and it's just a a program where people can come in and in a very non-judgmental way, do different things and explore different ideas around their gender and their sexual identity. And again, everything that we do is based on recreation. So just as long as people are having fun and we're doing a lot of interesting things, that's how natural communities get built. So we always have food, we always have like arts and crafts, and then we do crazy things like Red by Queens or Drag Queen Bingo, or on April 20th, we all dressed in drag and delivered tacos to different organizations and stuff as part of our fundraisers because, again, we, we all have to have an aspect of fundraising within our programming because we don't have any kind of core funding. So 
so you listed off a string of letters there. A lot of people have gotten accustomed to LGBT community. Maybe you could qualify some of the other letters that are now and symbols are starting to uh, be associated with with uh, these communities. Can you help us uh, understand that a little bit, if you don't mind, Levi? Sure thing. So a lot of other folks might not fit under these different types of spectrums or these different types of identities for various different reasons. Um, uh, so we also will have one of the things that a lot of the people who participate in Sunshine House programming identify as is Two-Spirit, which is an indigenous kind of an indigenous view of people who possess both masculine and female identities in, within inside themselves. So those would be those those types of folks. And you have queer people, people who don't necessarily uh, ascribe to either G, L, or the B or the T. It's just something they're, they're just they're queer. It's it's a high, more political. You'll find it a more political political kind of term. Uh, then there's intersex folks and asexual folks who fit, who are part of our community as well. And then plus, so that's just anybody who might be gender or sexually variant in some sort of, in some sort of capacity. So it's just, it's just a bunch of different ways that people like to identify themselves as, as, as just part of their many identities. Well, I wish we had more time for the education, uh, but unfortunately the clock has us, but I want to thank you for coming in. Thanks for I, having I me. I feel like we need to have you back sometime down the road. Levi Foy, a.k.a. Prairie Sky, is the founder of the Like That program at Sunshine House this Saturday at the Millennium Library at 2 o'clock, and then again Wednesday, May 31st at the West End Library at 6.30 p.m. Read by Queens, a family storytime event led by local drag queens. It's going to be uh, picture book readings by the queens, followed by themed crafts and games. Levi, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Weather is up next. 3.38. Ready for the long weekend? I know I am. Oh, yeah. Are we hammering hammering it down your throat? Hey, if you got to work this weekend, uh, hats off to you. Thanks for working the odd hours. I don't know if we've sent out our weekly salute to those that work odd hours, work the shift work, frontline workers, first responders, etc. We appreciate everything you do. Retail workers who uh, work uh, when we want to shop. That's a big deal, too. We appreciate it very much. Did we get a text message yesterday about Queen Victoria's birthday, the fact that we celebrate it, but the Brits don't even celebrate it? Yeah, we did get a text to to that uh, effect. And we're going actually tomorrow on uh, Tristan and McGarry. When Tristan Field Jones steps in for Greg Mackling. Okay, hold on. You can't change the name of the show. For one day. You can't change the name of the show. Well, for tomorrow. We've got marketing materials and such that need to be respected. I don't know if any of it's been trademarked. Uh, okay, for one day fine. we can't we can't yeah, call it. Yeah, you can. <laughs> you have my you have my Grudging approval. Oh, okay. No, it's all good, Matt. It's all good. <laughs> well, we're going to talk to Kim Lawson, who, of course, is our resident uh, monarchy expert, the one mm-hmm. who's always who jumps to defense of the monarchy, uh, despite most of the newsroom railing against her. And uh, we're going to talk to her about Victoria Day. What is why it is significant? What does it mean? And we will ask her this very question: Is that in fact true? And if so, why do the Brits not celebrate Victoria Day? Fascinating stuff. Us burning schoolhouse. That's what it means to me. Did you ever get the burning schoolhouse firework? No. No? Okay. I'm really old then. 
Um, well, no, that doesn't make you old. It just yes, means I'm not, not a you're term just I've not heard. familiar with that uh, practice of the burning schoolhouse, and I think it's just because I'm that much older than you. I don't know. It's a really lame firework, is what it is. Oh, yes, uh, I can remember it just being called Firecracker Day when I was a kid. Really the May long weekend and the holiday was Firecracker Day. Oh, okay, yeah, kind of cool. Anyway, you set off firecrackers. Yes. Yes, and play with, uh, what are those things? Sparklers? Sparkler. That's the one. They can be kind of dangerous if you're not careful. Be careful with the firecrackers. Remember going to Falcon Lake or West Hawk Lake camping one year because it coincides with my birthday. Mm -hmm. And we went camping with my mom. My mom, sweet, sweet lady. Um not always in tune with the environment, though, and thought it'd be a good idea to shoot off fireworks in the middle of the provincial campground on the May long weekend where there are, oh, I don't know, thousands of trees that may catch fire in a certain situation. <laughs> we got in a lot of trouble from <laughs> conservation that week. You think you get in trouble for drinking, playing your guitar too loud? Try setting off fireworks at uh, West Hawk Lake Provincial Campground. Not good. Not good. So don't do that. Okay. All right. We have some stuff to give away. Okay, let's do it. And I believe you have some music on tap. It will be my pleasure to play some music. I got to press that button. Traveling Wilburys, Bob Dylan, George Harrison, Jeff Lynn, Roy Orbison, and Tom Petty. George George Harrison was my favorite Beatle. Thusly, via the trans transitive property, I think. Sure. He would be my favorite traveling Wilbury, and this song is heading for the light features prominently the vocal stylings of one George Harrison. I was wondering why you selected that song, and good for you, because we, we tried to do the same thing with Tr- Twisted Sister. We, we chose songs that were not necessarily their most well-known. So this is a song that I, quite frankly, don't even know, because I think they had two big hit singles and... If memory serves. Yeah, but so much good music there if you're willing to investigate. So the reason why we're playing the Traveling Wilburys is we have two tickets to give away to something called Unraveling the Wilburys. They're a tribute. You can get more information on them at unravelingthewilburys.com. They are playing Wednesday, May 24th. So next Wednesday, Burton Cummings Theatre. We have two tickets to give away right now at 204-780-6868. Call number four. We're, we don't have any trivia questions for you today. <laughs> I could, we could have had one. I oh. had one and I gave the answer. Who are the members of, the original members of the Traveling, traveling Wilburys? Well, who plays the drums in that? I think it's Jeff Lynn from ELO. That that could have been a, actually a trivia question. I think. I'm pretty sure it's Jeff Lynn. I'll have to check on that. Maybe though. that could be tomorrow's trivia question. In for fact, those. I asked in the newsroom, is Jeff Lynn still alive from ELO? Yeah, everybody's like, yeah, as far as we know, he's still alive. <laughs> Unless he died this afternoon. All joking aside. Uh, but, of course, Roy Orbison has passed and George Harrison are both gone. So, uh, anyway, I'm going to check on who played drums for the uh, Traveling Wilburys. 204-780-6868. Jeff Forte is feverishly answering the phones to get to caller number four to send to Unraveling the Wilburys, Wednesday, May 24th at Burton Cummings Theatre. And if you missed today, then you'll be able to try again tomorrow. 
when it's uh, me and Tristan Field-Jones <laughs> filling in for Greg Mackling. And still to come this half hour, we're going to hear from Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham as they tee up the news right after traffic and a look at your forecast, which is all coming up next. Brett, so you realize that you came up with the trivia question that we're just mucking around with the answer to yeah. uh, last night and you, you didn't write it down. That's right. It was. I was thinking, who did play drums for the Traveling Wilburys? It wasn't it was, Jeff Lynn. It was, uh, what was Jim Keltner. Yes. He was also known as Buster Sidebury oh. because, of course, all the uh, other members had a, had a Wilbury name, right? Nelson Wilbury was George Harrison. We're really using up trivia questions here, aren't we? Otis was uh, Jeff Lynn. Lefty was Roy Orbison. Charlie T. Wilbury Jr. was Tom Petty because I guess Tom Petty's the youngest of the group. And Lucky Wilbury was Bob Dylan. Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham are here to tee up the news. Good afternoon, Richard. Julie, what's coming up? Good afternoon. It was one of the shortest news conferences that Donald Trump uh, held, and he let the Colombian president also talk quite a lot about it. But Trump had a few words. More on that, and we'll bring in an expert on that. And, of course, um, the two so-called, well, celebrity deaths, um, Fox chairman Roger Ailes. And later we're going to talk to Alan Cross uh, who has that special tonight on Power 97 about the uh, the legacy of Chris Cornell. We just want to jump in real quick here. Toronto Blue Jays outfielder uh, Kevin Pillar has been suspended two games by the team, by the Blue Jays, for yelling a homophobic slur at Atlanta picture Jason Mott. Yes, also sent you guys a, a statement from the group We Can Play. And uh, pretty... Pretty measured statement and and obviously relieved that Kevin Pillar had taken responsibility for his actions. We are hoping that we can get someone from We Can Play on the show a little bit later on this afternoon. But in case we don't, we do have uh, that statement saying that this slur doesn't have to define Kevin. He can become a role model in the future and things that get said in the heat of the moment can be an opportunity to make baseball and sports better for everyone. Well, I understand that the Blue Jays, you know, I I get why they had to make their suspension. And I also understand, Greg, you had comments earlier about he's, uh, this is part of who he is if it came off the tip of his tongue. But he was fairly quick. I think it should be acknowledged that he apologized immediately after the game. Because I can't tell you how many times where I've lost my temper and then tried to apologize for it. Doesn't make it better but at least he didn't wait to issue the the kind of canned statement. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, no. It does make it. It does. An apology does make it better, but don't suggest that it's not part of who you are because it's part of your vernacular. Clearly, otherwise you wouldn't have uttered the well, word. I would. I would. I would just challenge. <laughs> I realize this is Julie's Can we go time. Go down to the rabbit hole. But how many times have, have you have you ever lost your temper and said things that you you really sure. like? Wow, I can't. Where did that come from? But I don't say words that aren't in my vocabulary. I don't suddenly begin speaking Chinese or another language I'm unfamiliar with. Uh, in fact, you rely on the words that you know best when you're in a, when you're in an argument and that are cutting and that you know will hurt the other person. And I, I just I don't buy it. Sorry. We'll just leave Greg on his high horse for that one. No, I'm not on any high horse. I just, I don't buy it. And that's my personal opinion on it. I think you go to the words you know best when you're pushed into a corner. And uh, that's one he obviously likes to use. There's no doubt in my mind he he used it uh, more than once in the last 365 days. Julie, what else is coming up on the news? Well, let's talk about something we are all familiar with, food. 
and lunch. And it seems that an awful lot of us are eating our lunch at our desks. No way. Yes. Really? Mm-hmm. You mean it's not just us at 680 CGOB that no. do that? <laughs> and we'll talk to Sylvain Charlebois about that, about why we're eating lunch at our desk, if that's a good thing or if it's a bad thing. He thinks it's not going to be a positive thing. So yeah, we'll we spend some... too much time sitting at our desk in the first place, a- adding food to it. Probably not the best. We're also taking quizzes to find out if we were a dinosaur what kind of dinosaur we would be mm. as uh, the dinosaurs make their way back to Winnipeg. I never did take that stupid Star Wars quiz. <laughs> I kept telling Regrets. you I was going to do it, and I, know. I, I kept forgetting. By the way, uh, there's a broken down car, Michaela, thank you, in the second turning lane on Henderson Highway northbound onto Chief Peguis Trail going west. Traffic is backed up to Sutton. That's going to be a little bit of a pain. Yeah, so we'll also have tickets for Tim and Faith and Piaf the show. We'll take your words for that. Very good. And by the way, when I said stupid, I didn't mean the quiz was stupid. I just meant like, I I forgot to take the quiz. I'm pretty sure you use that word stupid all the time. I do use I've used that word more than once in the last oh, 365 days. You mean, you mean days. the word stupid just slipped out of your mouth? Why would it just slip out, Brett? Because I like that word. That's exactly right. But, but okay. You can't tell me that you haven't gotten angry at people yep. and said things that were just horrible. Yep. But and then so then that's who you are. That's part of you. Just automatically say, "Well, I said those horrible things. I guess that's who I am." Because that's what that's how I'm interpreting your argument. The words that you use are part of your vocabulary, and when they slip off the tip of your tongue as easily as that, it's part of who you are. And so, just because so you, I can string, so you, what do you say, a weave, a tapestry of profanity? I don't use words. I try not to use words. I, uh, it's hard enough to use the proper words in when we're here on the air and trying to express a, a thought. When you're in the heat of a battle of an argument, guess what? There's old standbys that you go to. Yes, but to say that, but I get if I get that angry that rarely, that doesn't mean that that's who I am. Doesn't mean that's a part of who I am. It's a it's a deep dark part, maybe, but but I that's not how I define myself. So you can't say that that's. Well, I'm not who trying he to is. define him, but just for him to say that's not who who you are, he's denying a little bit about who he is. If that's the stand he's going to take on that, I, sorry, I don't believe it. I disagree a hundred percent. Part with of your that. vocabulary, dude. I can. Can you hear the galloping of the high horse? <laughs> That's it for today. Have a good long weekend, Greg. And uh, thank you so much for listening to Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB.